all it is, is, is this amazing model that you can use to help anchor yourself to a better idea of how you'd like to perform. It's not faking it till you make it. It's not about being inauthentic. It's about you being really authentic with our capacity, with our creative imagination to step into a new idea of what we can do. Hi, I'm Nick Nanton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. All right, we're live. Uh, Nick Nanton here with my friend Todd Herman, who I've actually known for a really long time when I get back to it. I mean, we met at a Dan Kennedy event. I mean, it must be 10, 12 years ago. Is that about right? Yeah, no, you're right. It was probably about 2006 or 2007, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, a, a long, long time. And so, yeah, you've gone on and, and done some amazing things, my friend. And I'm excited to talk to you about all sorts of things today. I'm going to give a short bio. Uh, it's a bio we wrote based on what you've done. So hopefully it's accurate. So here we go. Todd Herman is an author, entrepreneur, business coach, and mentor who has spent more than 20 years working as a performance advisor to athletes and business executives at the highest level. He is the creator of the multi-award-winning leadership and skills development program, 90 Day Year, and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Todd is the founder and CEO of Herman Performance Systems, which helps ambitious people in athletics and business achieve wildly outrageous goals while enjoying the process. His company received Inc. 500's Fastest Growing Companies Award. And Todd's programs are delivered annually to over 200,000 professionals in 73 countries. I bet that's going up right now. Originally from Alberta, Canada, uh, Todd is a self-described science nerd, sports nut, and mindset geek who has lived and worked in over 82 countries. Today, he lives in New York City with his wife, Valerie, and their three young children. Todd, what did we screw up? I am a horrible ukulele player. um, And I once did a speech in front of 13,000 college students with my fly down. So, um, there's a story in mental toughness. No, you've, you've nailed a lot of things. Now I need to like knock myself down a few notches. Uh, (laughs) So tell me this, um, you, I believe if I read correctly on Facebook, you got COVID at the beginning of all this, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, at the beginning of March or the first two weeks of March, if you searched for coronavirus patient, I was the number one return on Google. So yeah, I, I, was doing American Ninja Warrior training with my kids and I ruptured my Achilles in February, went into uh, Mount Sinai Hospital to get the reconstruction done on my Achilles. And uh, when I was in there, that's when I got the corona, the, the coronavirus. And so I, we were locked down a little bit earlier than everyone else was. And yeah, it was a, definitely an interesting ride. How much was out there about it then when you got it? Because I, I have another friend who got it and he said, even though he was, he had really low, like not any comorbidities, but just the mental side of it, that it's something that you could die from. He said mm-hmm. it's a really different mental game, even though, you know, the percentage wasn't high. It just, really yeah. For them. Was there a lot of that in your mind or no? No, it didn't really affect me on the, on the mental side as much. I sort of the game that I work inside of every single day. Right. Yeah. So like every day when you're talking to people about navigating uncertainty, navigating complexity and ambiguity, it's, it's that muscle that you build, not that I was preparing to die, but at the time, yeah, mine started out with a horrible flu, worst, worst flu I've ever had. And then it went into the lungs about on the third day. And at that time I was actually coming out the other side of it. I started to kind of work again, but this is at the very beginning of the, uh, sort of pandemic 
sort of blowing up in America, a little bit early phase. And the only narrative was people are dying, hospital beds, all this kind of stuff. And I was in New York City, kind of the epicenter at the time. And I reached out to some friends in media and I was like, listen, yeah, it sucks, but I'm not laying into a, in a bed right now. And there is no story out there about someone who's at home recovering from it. So let's get this story out there. So Business Insider picked it up, Yahoo News, MSNBC, a bunch of others. And I just felt it was important that other people could, you know, allay some of their fears. But uh, I will say that because I was always like a week ahead of all the news that was coming out, because of my Achilles, I had, you know, a lot of swelling around the surgery area. And I was supposed to be taking um, 600 milligrams of ibuprofen to keep the swelling down. And I took ibuprofen one night and it was about the seventh day in and my lungs flared up. Uh, in fact, that was the night that we thought that I was going to have to go to the hospital and my, my wife didn't think I was going to make it through, but we kind of kept on waiting and waiting. So even though a few days later, the WHO came out and said, Hey, there's a link between ibuprofen and this thing magnifying the pneumonia. Then the next day they retracted it. I came out again in the media and was like, no, there is a hundred percent. Like, again, it's anecdotal link, but that was the only thing that changed in my life. So yeah, it didn't really affect me that way. But I mean, I, now five months later, it did do uh, quite a bit of damage to my lungs. I've got about 50% damage on my lungs. The doctor said, you got the lungs of someone who looks like he's been smoking for 25 to 30 years. So it'll take a while for it to recover, but you know, we're okay. Went through the entire family. I was the only one who got it really bad. Well, I'm glad you were doing well. It was good to see you before that. Yeah. Uh, for the Dreamer movie with Giovanni Marcico, we did a sneak peek. A lot of people saw it. About 100,000 people saw that, and it's coming out now uh, again in about another 60 days. We're going to do a full cool. release. So thanks for participating in that, man. I appreciate it. Of course. Uh, anything I can do to attach attach to your magic, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so the alter ego effect, uh, not at all what I thought it was, right? So uh-huh. I, I had seen a bunch of people posting about it, but we run in circles where Everyone posts about a lot of books every, all the time. Let's be yeah. honest. And so yep. it's hard to know what to pay attention to. And I just, I really didn't get it. I don't remember how it made it onto my list recently, but I'm like, I got to finally read this book. Everyone won't shut up about it yet. Fine. Damn it. I'll read the book. And so I got the audiobook. You're narrating, which I love, by the way. It's just so good to get the the personal yeah. of it all. And I, I read books, audiobooks, uh, like at one and a half speed. So they keep my ADD going. And I do it while I'm running. The only problem is if I get distracted, I've lost like 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, like sure. you, you, totally. you have one daydream and you're 30 minutes behind. The book, <laughs> so you're, you're rewinding. But give everybody the the basic principle behind the book. And why don't we start from what made you want to write the book? Your performance coach. You help people, yeah. well, like you said, with their head game. Give us a bit yeah. about that. And then let's talk about why you decided to put in a book. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest reasons why I want to write the book, I've been asked by people since 2004 to start writing this book, which was when I started to become more known as the guy who was using this as a major tool in my toolkit to help people get all of their capabilities out onto the field of play, whatever sport it was for them. And I used it when I played sports. I had this alter ego Geronimo that I'd step into when I played football, you know, it got me some college football scholarships and, uh, you know, I'm not a physically gifted person. I wasn't six foot four, 240 pounds when I was in high school, but I played to really probably the maximum capacity that I had, uh, in me. And then, and then once I got into starting this business, the peak athlete back in 1997, and I started escalating through and, you know, I started out, I was only working with like young teenage kids. That's all who I was qualified to work with at the time, but through amazing mentors and constantly just up leveling my skill, I got to working with better and better athletes. And as I did, Olympians, pro athletes, 
this common theme kept on weaving the kind of consistent performers together, which was they would, a lot of them would talk about this other identity, this sort of performer that they would step into to go out onto that field. And I would always kind of more be like, oh my God, that's amazing. I did the exact same thing when I, when I played sport, it wasn't a part of my training protocol. And then it was when I was preparing one uh, lady who was competing for the U S Olympic team in the Athens games in 2000 and the 2004 Olympics, but this was 2003. She just mentioned her alter ego and then it just clicked. And then all those other conversations that I'd had with all these, all these other top athletes, I'm like, wait, this is like an actual thing. So I started unpacking it more, interviewing clients and started developing this protocol for how you build a performance identity, which allows you to disassociate from your own sort of story and narrative of what you think you can and can't do, because we all do this, right? We all put labels on ourselves. Okay. Well, I'm short, you know, I'm black. I come from, you know, the farm, you know, or whatever it is. And sometimes those things limit us, but we're so well trained as kids to be creative and be playful and, and step into our imagination and play with the idea of someone and something else. So it's embedded inside of us. And when you do, you actually release a whole bunch of your potential and capability because no longer is it sort of shackled down to your own narrative. And you know this so well. I mean, your book is story selling. You know the importance of story in order to move someone to action. Well, the same thing goes when you're trying to coach yourself. And Cicero is the person who actually coined the name alter ego in 44 BC when he said, it's the other I or trusted friend within. And it, all it is, 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 is this amazing model that you can use to help anchor yourself to a better idea of how you'd like to perform. It's not faking it till you make it. It's not about being inauthentic. It's about you being really authentic with our capacity, with our creative imagination to step into a new idea of what we can do. Yeah, I, I, there's so much in there I want to pack. Number one, i uh, huge fan of mentors. I mean, when you met me, I, I still have the same business partner that's always been my mentor. Oh, wow. 18 years. And when you met us, he was there with me. And yeah. it's such a big, I mean, having mentors and coaches there, I just, I can never articulate this enough. And I don't do a lot of coaching, so it's not even self-serving for me. It's like sure. the best in the world have coaches. There are certain things you have blind spots for. Like everyone's yeah. like, oh, when are you going to make the documentary on yourself? I'm like, never, can't do it. You just, I just can't <laughs> do it. There's just things, I, and that's so so complicated. I, yeah. You know, it's like an abusive relationship. There's no way I can do this. But then when you start <laughs> digging in to the idea of an alter ego and, and you start talking about it in sports, the idea creeps up that, well, first of all, as kids, we are encouraged in play. We are encouraged to be yeah. anything we want to be. And then over the course of our teens and our 20s and whatever else, it, it, for most people, it gets severely beaten out of you that you mm -hmm. can be anything you want to be. And you get, you know, we can blame, there's all sorts of outer forces, but that happens. And then when you let yourself, your brain, your mind turn to play again, first of all, very uncomfortable for most people because we haven't done it a lot. We're out of practice. Yeah. Yeah. When you pretend to be somebody else, the thing that I think is, or not even someone, when, when you look at an alter ego, what I thought was most fascinating about your book is a lot of people would say, well, that's, they'd say things about, well, isn't that, like you said, not being true to yourself? And, and you made a statement, I'll mess it up, but essentially it's being your truest self. If you stop and ask yourself, who's my best self that could show up in this moment? That seems to really be the spirit of the alter ego that I took away from that. Yeah, hundred percent. It's, you know, in, in chapter three, I talk about, sort of like I kind of put together a model for people so they understand just, you know, 
why we end up kind of acting through the self that we act through daily, right? Because like, it's a habit. Um, and I'll give you an example, like, you know, as a coach to, you know, public figures and leaders and pretty big egos that are out there that you would see on your highlight reels on ESPN and sportscasts, you know, every night, I've got to show up sometimes with a really big fist, meaning I got to kind of break through a lot of the hard exteriors because so many of these people create this insulation around them because they've got people who want, just want something from them. And that's actually why in my business, I never share who I work with because I want to be the one guy who doesn't want anything from them. I'll never trade on their name or, or anything. Now I love what I do, which means I'm going to work eight, 10, 12 hours a day. And then that other time is devoted to my family. And then sometimes it'll be with friends, but that's, th those are my two biggest roles and motivations. Now it would be very easy because I flex this muscle all day long of a challenger personality type because of my role to then when I go home to my kids show up as who the challenger guy, but is that really me? No, that's the me that I flexed all day long. And what people can do is you can sort of fall into this trap of thinking, oh, well, that's just me. Like that's, I'm just, I'm just a ball buster or I'm whatever. It's like, no, no, no. That's just what you flexed every single day. That's the, that's the bicep muscle that you've been working. But when I go home, when I think about who's the guy that could show up and deliver a great performance there, not acting wise, performance is about the results that you're getting. And when I think about who I would like to be for my kids, it's creative, it's fun, it's playful, it's patient. All those four qualities, when you wrap them together, help me to show up in a better way so that I can be a great dad to them. Now, because I know so much about how our, the mind works or the brain works, I want to have a model in my mind as to who, who represents that already. Well, there's two people for me. It's my dad and Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers becomes that alter ego for me. It's that anchoring point, that model that I can use to remind myself of how I want to show up. It's not about me being fake. And when we talk about the real self or the truest self, the reality is there because words trap us. There is no such thing as a self. There is no one you, right? There's many versions of us. And so when I'm talking about the truest version of us, I'm talking about the fact that we have a whole bunch of capabilities. We have a whole bunch of traits, attributes, qualities that we can tap into at any point in time. And that's what the alter ego allows us to do is to tap into the things that are sometimes forgotten in our capacity as a human being to be and exist. So, yeah, I, I want to give uh, you give a couple examples in the book of people, athletes, as well as regular people who use alter egos. One of the things that I want to be that I thought was a really cool story was uh, you, you spoke at a military base and yeah. uh, one of the military guys who essentially was showing up every day with that muscle he flexed every day being, I mean, we've all heard of the military dad, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. any corner of a bed sheet being, and I'm sure there are benefits to that. Don't get me wrong. There's some things you might learn out of that, yeah. but probably a lot of damage too. And I think yeah. most of us do a bad job of remembering who we are, uh, who we really are to our families. I mean, I've even taken from that. I think I, I do a pretty good job, I think, with my kids, but there's so many times like when I'm on vacation, I've had to realize that my goal is not to remind the kids every day how much this is costing and that they mm. should be behaving. You know, it's just like such an easy thing <laughs> to like, hey, wait a second. Like it's my like it's my previous programming that's doing yeah. that to me when my job is to help them have fun. So they'll always remember yeah. Uh, having a great time. Right. And so yeah. how does this work in practical life for, give me some athlete examples and some real people examples too. 
Well, and to your point there, just an easy thing for me to catch myself is, you know, asking yourself, is that what Mr. Rogers would say? I doubt Mr. Rogers would be from in, in that, in an example, guilting my kids about how much something is costing, which is, that's just one of the kind of like many applications of how an alter ego is used. But yes, for the athlete side of things as examples, probably um, uh, the most famous one from the book. I mean, a lot of people will reference Kobe Bryant in the Black Mamba, but the one that actually helped me get such a great book deal was actually the one that leads off the book, which is about Bo Jackson. Um, and I was speaking at this event down in uh, Georgia ugh, 15, 16 years ago, and I was in the kind of green room, which was really a cafeteria in a high school, walking back and forth. And, and you know this as well from speeches that you've given that people hear green room and it sounds so luxurious, but it's not most of the time. So as I'm pacing back and forth, getting ready to go on stage and then in walks just this absolute physical specimen, you know, and the only athlete to ever won the all-star in two major North American sports, baseball and football. And so it's Bo Jackson. He walks over to me because I'm the only one in the room and he's like, Hey, I'm Bo Jackson. I said, yeah, I, I know who you are. I wouldn't be a very good sports guy if I didn't. And, uh, he's like, Oh, are you going up on stage? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going up next, but you might've just bumped me. And he just laughed. He's like, no, no, you're okay. So he said, what are you going to talk about? And I talked about how you know, I'm going to go out there and talk about the mental game, but specifically, I'm going to talk to the athletes about building out an alter ego or a performance identity you know, so that they could leave their sort of regular self on the sidelines and really commit with intention to, to step into this really powerful version of themselves. And he got this really sort of almost shocked look on his face and he kind of cocked his head to the side and he said, Bo Jackson never played a down of football his entire life. And I said, tell me more. And he said, well, you know, growing up, I had a lot of like, you know, emotional anger issues. And while that sounds like that would work out well for you as a running back on a football team to smash people, it did, but it also caused me to take some bad penalties and I wasn't the most coachable. So one night I was watching a movie and on the screen comes this character who's cold, calculating, methodical. And I thought to myself, wait a second, what if I took that out onto the football field? And it was Jason Voorhees or Jason from Friday the 13th movie. And what I love is the reaction from people who are like, wait a second, here's a guy who dealt with anger issues and he chose a serial killer from a movie. And I'm like, yeah, but that's the beautiful thing about life. And when, when all of us watch movies, and you know this well, because this is your world, is each person gets their own takeaway from that person. And his was, he was challenged with anger and he sees someone that's methodical, calculating, and just unrelenting. And he's like, that's what he attached to is that sort of emotional way. And so when he went onto the football field, that's when he went... Actually, he did a very specific heel-to-toe motion on the football field. And when he did, that's when Jason would enter him. And he played it in the same style as he did before, but with no emotion whatsoever. And that's what he felt really helped launch him into a, a career where he really enjoyed it. It wasn't just so emotionally taxing for him. Yeah, it makes me wonder uh, if Hannibal Lecter might have been Mike Tyson's alter ego. Well, Mike Tyson talks about well, he talks about the Iron Mike, but he talks about his alter ego as well, quite openly about uh, how he navigated that sort of inner game and, and why he felt like he was able to go in there and dominate other people in the ring better than others because he was like, I, I didn't take anything from outside the ring into that ring except for whatever was going to help me win. So that's, that's one story. And then, you no, know, because it's very easy for people to go, I get the idea of an alter ego for Beyonce and Sasha Fierce, right? Because they're performing on a stage, but I'm not really performing. And I always stop people because I'm like, well, yeah, you are. Because you're not performing in the context of trying to get, you know, claps and applause from people, but we're performing in the context of we're all trying to do things to get a result, right? Whether that's 
launch a business or uh, start a new venture or become a new parent or whatever, anytime we're taking on a new role, that new role is typically just fraught with a whole bunch of friction because you're bringing with it this old identity and you're carrying it into a new one. And so the colonel that you were mentioning from uh, Fort Bragg, where I was doing the speech, I was talking to a bunch of Rangers and Green Berets and stuff about building out a super soldier identity for themselves. And then the colonel came out and he's like, we actually walked outside. He's getting a little bit choked up and you know he's a colonel. So <laughs> we went out back and uh, he was like, I, I'm good at what I do and I'm good at preparing young men to go off to battle. But when I come home, that guy doesn't turn off. I treat my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old the exact same way. And they're little kids. They're not ready for battle yet. And so we talked about it. And, and in the book, I talk about how the power of a uniform or totem or an artifact is so important to help you, you know, really trigger the identity that you want in any situation. And so I said, well, when you go home, do you ever take off the uniform? And he said, uh, sometimes I'll keep it on for dinner or whatever, but I know I take it off, but I don't really take it off mentally. And I said, well, now we need to create a new uniform. And he bought a pair of, uh, so we created a new uniform for him, which was a pair of khaki, khaki shorts, pretty much pretty solid dad gear. Um, khaki shorts. He wasn't a flamboyant guy, but khaki shorts and, um, and a golf shirt, specific golf shirt. Um, it was an, from the IZOD brand actually. And I said, buy a few of those and that's your uniform. And now we need to add just like the, the military has added so much meaning and narrative around what these uniforms mean. We can do the same thing with this thing. And so we developed that. And, uh, I got one of the best emails ever, which was about two and a half months later, he, uh, emailed me, he said, just wanted to follow up. Uh, and thank you. But what I didn't tell you was for the previous nine months, my wife and I had been sleeping in separate rooms. And when I came home, my kids never greeted me at the door because they didn't want to be around the, uh, the angry yelling dad. And I just want to let you know that for the past seven weeks, my wife and I've been sleeping in the exact same bed and my kids now come to the door. And I'm like, for me, that's, I mean, I love helping athletes, but those are the wins that just are, I think are just so meaningful for me. Yeah, that's incredible. It's uh, that, that's quite quite the dad gear you got there. It's like uh, you created <laughs> yeah. white bread if it was a character. Right? Totally. <laughs> so good. That's, yeah, so good. you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, all good. Um, so you're an athlete yourself as well. You're a nationally ranked badminton player, which I've not yeah. played well ever. I didn't even know that was a thing. I played a lot of tennis, but topsman doesn't work so well in badminton. Tell us, no. tell us about that. And you played football, college football too. Yeah. Well, I, I grew up on a farm and ranch in Southern Alberta, Canada, and I was very much an extroverted kid and any chance I could get away and play some sort of sport, I would. And uh, badminton was just one of the sports that we kind of played in our area and I caught on well with it and developed a, a pretty wicked uh, slice drop shot over the net. And, you know, I was, I was good at the, the highest ranking I, I got was 197th, but there's always this one guy from Vancouver, Canada that I just could not ever beat. He, he had, he had my number. But yeah. I mean, I, I loved sport and is that um, one. Yeah. Is that how it works? It's, it's like, like singles. Is that how it works? Yeah. It was all singles. Got it was it. all singles. Yeah. It's I funny. played, as, I, I played doubles a couple times, but it was pretty much I got singles, you. Yeah. As I was reading this, so I was, uh, I never got nationally, but a state ranked tennis player in the state of Florida. And I was, you know, getting some That's smaller good. scholar college scholarships and stuff, uh, offers, but there's this kid that I could not beat and he trained with me, which made it even harder. Right. And we had a great oh, coach. Yeah. And I did, I thought of it literally as I was reading the book, my coach takes me out one day. He's like, look, I'm going to have you play him today. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the biggest jerk after every single shot. Every time he misses, be like, 
I told you he had nothing. Every time you hit a shot, I'd be like, that's what you get. And I went out there, I beat him like six, two, six, one. And it was literally because he just said, stop being nice. Like he knew yeah. it was going to get into his head. Most importantly, like, cause I'm a relationship builder. So training totally. with somebody, I don't want to have to go. I don't want to beat him at it. Like so I wanted to beat him, but subconsciously I didn't want to beat him at a tournament on a Saturday or a Sunday yeah. and then go back and have to train with him on Monday because that was just more awkwardness than I wanted to deal with. So I couldn't beat the kid until I turned into a total jerk, which, you know, we told him afterward and he sort of laughed sort of, yeah. um, but it was yeah, really, sort of. It, it, it really, it really reminded me like how powerful that was when I, when I was able, I was how freeing it was to put on something else that had none of the baggage of at that time I was probably 17 of the previous 17 years of my life. I just got to yeah. be somebody else. And I was encouraged to be like, I was given an order to be somebody else and how freeing it was and how it worked out. You have no way. That's probably one of the most common little, cause I get pinged on Instagram DMS, Facebook DMS every single day. Now that the book's been out for the last year and a half um, of people going, there was this one time where my coach told me or my acting coach told me or whatever. And it was almost like, it's so many people. It's so freeing when someone comes up and kind of taps the shoulder with the sword and says, you are now anointed to be something different. Right. Yes. But I'm, I'm curious for you, how much did that affect like that? Cause I'm the same way. I'm a relationship guy. I, I love people. And for me, it always affected me in that I wasn't a very good in, in starting out, I wasn't very good at business dealings, like negotiating. And like, that's, that's just a part of the deal of it. Yeah. I, I met him when I was in college and I knew that, I mean, I'd always been entrepreneurial. I had businesses, but I couldn't, I just felt like there were walls I couldn't break through. Um, I think a piece of it was cause I was in the music business, which is just really hard. Like it is mm -hmm. such a hard business. I'm still, you can see my guitar. I'm still addicted to it. I can still write music in Nashville and all the deal. And, but it's just a tough business. And so I felt like you know, someone who's been through it, he's 30 years older than I am. And I was, I felt like someone who's been through it would just be super helpful, like a coach. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. he was. And so I would say I, my, probably my biggest weakness is still, I actually, I think of it as a strength, but I'm, I'm not a hard bargainer. I don't do yeah. that. It's sort of like, here's what I do. And here's what I know I can bring to the table. I have confidence in it, but I'm always trying to find a way to help everybody win. So yeah. it's interesting. I thought about a few a few different types of villains, as you talk about in the book, and a few types of people who I need to be in certain scenarios. And there are certain scenarios where uh, my business partner calls it client creep. When you agree to something based on reasonable standards, like just yeah. let's just be reasonable. And then someone is not reasonable. And then who you have to then become in order to make sure that you just aren't getting completely taken advantage of. And so yeah. I've had to learn that. I've certainly had to learn that over time. One of the ways you talk about it in the book uh, where people are asking the question about an alter ego and is this healthy or not? Um, I think you, you put, this is a note that I have your alter alter ego is about defining how you want to show up and borrowing someone else's characteristics to activate the heroic self in certain aspects of your life. So you were yeah. looking for who would be the biggest hero in this setting. Is, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So that big breakthrough that I, that I had, well, some of it came from some of the psychology books that I was reading where, um, and this is actually how I found my, my biggest mentor in my life, which was Harvey Dorfman. He's known as the Yoda of baseball, literally wrote the kind of Bible of the industry called coaching the mental game. He's absolute genius. And so, um, I was reading all these sports psych books cause I was, my, my practice was growing and people were taking notice and stuff. But as a guy who played sport at a pretty good level, a lot of the things I was reading just didn't make any sense. Like it just sounded like I was going to be thinking more out there and it wasn't, 
it just sounded more theoretical and it wasn't practical. And then I came across Harvey and his was like super practical. And it showed because he was an actual practitioner. He was out there working with these athletes all the time. But in the process of learning more about, you know, the psychology of human beings and the behavioral science of us and, and everything, there was this concept I came across called uh, single self theory, which was that in the world of psychology and really spiritual traditions as well, they felt like the people who were the most healthy mentally had one single identity that they used in all their, their all areas of their life. And that was when I knew that I needed to stop reading a lot of those books because you know this because you work with celebrities as well. You know, and anyone who's listening, have you ever, I'll ask you the question, have you ever met a public figure, athlete, local newscaster, whoever, and you met them in real life and you're like, oh, they're actually a lot different in real life than I thought they would be, right? And then it makes sense to you. You're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And yet there's these kind of principles in psychology that break under the weight of practical life. And so I was always, I always knew that my athletes were very different on the field than they were off the field. And I wanted to help them cultivate both of those things so they could leave the wins and losses there and not take it into their personal lives where it can really kind of be toxic for most of them. Um, and, uh, and so in that process now in 2008, that was when the psychology world really shifted. And now they've said that the people who have and see themselves as having many selves, many roles that they play in life are actually the healthiest mentally. Anyone who tries to act through just one identity is the person who struggles the most. And so the alter ego is just one of these amazing tools that you can use, especially for ambitious people where you're constantly bumping up against comfort zones to help you accelerate through much more rapidly. Because really the thing that holds most people back in the early stages of anything is the identity. It's how you see yourself. It's your own self-concept. And so the alter ego is this great way of creating a new model for how you see yourself in this role. And it's inspired by the traits, characteristics, abilities of someone or something else or many people. And that's what you're going to attach yourself to, 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 to sort of race towards that new kind of horizon of who you're going to be. Yeah. I got a story about that, that it was relayed to me and it, and I, it made sense to me, but I also, this book made me think of it as well. But uh, real quick before that, the thing that I, I really liked about when you're talking about people celebrities particularly usually put on some sort of character in the public eye. And and yeah. you quoted somebody who's, I believe, who said, yeah, if I was myself, I would get really hurt whenever someone, you know, gave me a, a yeah. type of criticism, or whatever else. I, I loved that idea. It's interesting. I've been, I've been thinking about there's certain ways as a speaker, even as a public personality, as a host, I can do those things. Really yeah. interesting as a director, by the way, trying to figure that out. Because there's, I mean, because I'm trying to show my vision. Maybe it's, I don't know. I got to think that through. I'm sure there's some, some deep work you do on me for that. But the other story <laughs> that I heard was someone was at like a Vegas nightclub and Jennifer Lopez was there with like some friends. And I think she was, of course, there with probably the DJ and whoever was, you know, running the club yeah. at night. And they kept like encouraging her to get on stage. And she kept being like, no, no. I mean, she was just sort of chilling. And they finally talked her into it. And my friend was like, and you just saw a switch go on and you saw yeah. what she did for the next like 20 minutes and how exhausting it was. Like she became the amount of energy she had to exert to become that character. She really didn't want to do it because she just wanted to relax. And 
you know, when you get yourself hyped up yeah. for the big game or the big speech or the whatever, like someone said the other day, uh, the reason why so many, uh, so many actors and musicians and athletes and like they get involved in drugs and alcohol because turning off that high is very difficult. That yeah. could have taken her six or seven hours to get off of that high after performing and the whole deal. And it, it just really reminded me as reading this book, like she put on her character and she apparently lit it yeah. up. I wasn't there to see it, but she was resistant because she's like, ah, just sort of want to hang out tonight. Oh man, there's so much there that I could, that I could work with you on, on that conversation. But so to your point that you said that, you know, now she's going to take six or seven hours to get off of that higher, could be two hours, two hours, three hours, or four hours. That's actually some of the stuff that I work with people on so that it doesn't exhaust them. And they, they can actually turn it off really, really fast. There's like just certain triggers and switches that you can do, but kind of another thing to go along with that story or just my point to that story. So do you know who, remember Brian Bosworth? Yeah. The amazing, you know, Oklahoma linebacker, you know, came in him and Bo Jackson both had this amazing collision when they were in Seattle. And uh, Brian Bosworth has, uh, there's actually a documentary on Netflix about him where he talks about how being the boss, because again, he became this marketed guy and uh, being the boss became exhausting for him because he's, here he is, he's in college at University of Oklahoma, just the biggest personality now in college sports all around. And he'd be sitting in a diner in Norman, Oklahoma and someone would come up to him and be like, boss. And they, they immediately expect him to step into that boss alter ego or that boss identity. And a friend of mine who's a professional golfer said, what would you have done with an athlete like that? And I'm like, it's very simple. I would have had him turn to them and say, oh, you're looking for the boss. The boss only shows up on the field at one o'clock on Saturday. So if you want to see him, get your tickets and come to come. To, and Again, he's, he's 19, 20, 21 at the time. You're not going to have the intellectual capacity to necessarily understand how these two worlds separate. But when you, when you do understand that we do play many roles, then it allows you to kind of talk in a different way. And I've had so many people that have pinged me with so many different press conferences after games, whether it's with LeBron or whatever. And they're like, oh my God, this is him talking about his alter ego because he, was, he mentioned something in a different way. And I said, yeah, this is the language of peak performance. This is what we talk about. My point in the JLo thing was now people in the book know I talk about how I bought a pair of non-prescription fake glasses when I was 21 because uh, I was insecure about how young I looked and I, and I thought these things were going to make me look older. And I also used them as my trigger to step into Super Richard, the guy who was unafraid of rejection because Todd was terribly afraid of rejection and resistance and I wouldn't make the sales calls I needed to make. But I still use them when people come up to me and they go, oh man, they, they I'm at it like a dinner thing in New York City and they're asking me for advice. And I'm like, oh, you're looking for glasses, Todd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's inside of the XYZ program and the, this program and stuff. But tonight, it's just Todd that's here tonight, right? And people go, and all I'm trying to do is just model for the people and show them how to show up in the world. Like, I mean, I just want to hear and have fun. I'm engaged with people and I, and I don't like pedestal things. So if I was JLo that night, I would have said, oh, you're looking for JLo. Yeah, yeah. no, no, it's, Je it's just Jennifer Lopez here tonight. Uh, love that. Jenny from the block. That's uh, that's yeah. who's here tonight. <laughs> yeah. We share uh, James Altucher as a friend as well, right? We do. Yeah. We uh, do. I can't wait till you see the eight part docuseries is coming out within the next week. And we're just waiting for Amazon to hit. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent yeah. you know like 12 months around the world with James, London, Paris, LA, New York. It was insane. Uh, I can't wait. It's ever a guy who expect. talks a lot. He's pretty good at keeping a secret because he never mentioned that to me. Yep. I mean, we, we go to each other's places for dinner and stuff in New York, and he is truly an individual card in the deck. That's for sure. Oh, man. And, and what a great human being. I, I love yeah. the guy dearly. I, I couldn't have spent that much time with him. The best part I was telling someone earlier today, I was like, I would just show up and 
I would think there was a plan and it would just become James's plan. And it was always amazing. Like Bert Kreischer would show up and like all these amazing yeah. people would just, oh yeah, I'm interviewing Bert today. Uh, sure. I'm like, all right, well, I'll sit in on that. And so just, yeah. and, and, and we go to, we go to London, they do some like tweet that he's going to be in town. All these people show up at this little comedy club and it, and it was, and watching, actually watching his evolution as a comedian, even over that time was super fun. Yeah. So I can't wait for you to see it. You're, you're going to, you know what? The, Cause you bring up James. Um, so when I did his podcast, when the book came out, a, I mean, <laughs> for you, Nick, I know I can show up. There's going to be a logical pearl necklace chain of like, everything's going to connect together. Right. Well, with James, it's like being thrown into a, not a ping pong table, but a, uh, Bumper pool? <laughs> whatever, oh, whatever the arcade game. Pinball. Yeah. It's like putting into a pinball game. I mean, it was all over the place. So the thing with him though, and like a lot of these other people who've achieved great levels of success is people look at them and they sort of put them on a pedestal and, and everything. And you know, the thing, that's the thing we love about James is that he's all warts and all like, this is who I am. These are my demons. I battle and all that. That's what's so endearing about his writing as well. But he's a funny character when, so we got done talking with this and he's like, this is, this is so good. It, it maps to so many things that I've done in my life. And, uh, and afterwards, and James wouldn't mind me saying this, but he was getting ready to go to Hollywood to, um, pitch another show. It might've been this one with you. Cause this was a little over a year ago. And, uh, he's like, you know, I, I'm getting really, really nervous. You know, when, when I did this, like 15 years ago, I'd walk into these meetings and I wouldn't care. And I put my feet up on my desk because I just didn't care for their approval. Now all of a sudden I feel like I'm caring for their approval. And I was like, yeah, well, as a performance side of things, that's a terrible thing. So I said, well, yeah. So I did a coaching session with them. And then I was like, well, when you're out there, just give me a call. So he's literally going between, he went, he had like seven meetings in one day. He went from some maybe touchstone and he was going over a Fox searchlight. Sure. I think it was Fox. And he's like, okay, I'm going in here and I'm getting a little bit nervous. And so I was talking about it, talking about like just some strategies for him. And then uh, he's like, all right, they're calling me into the room. I'm like, wait, where are you? And he's like, oh, I've been standing in the doorway the entire time. I'm like, you've been standing in the doorway talking about your strategy on how you're going to deal with them. <laughs> he's so funny. The best. Uh, he's the best. The best. Super transparent, which is like one of the most transparent human beings I've ever met, which I learned a lot from. It's just, it, it's fun yeah. to watch. And yeah, I can't wait. I'll, uh, the first, we put up the first episode as a teaser on YouTube. I'll send it to you. And uh, I might know a guy I can get you pre-access to the rest too, but uh, it's- Yeah, uh, put in a word, put in a word. Uh, cool, <laughs> I will. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit more about the book for those of you just joining us. Yeah. Uh, Todd is the author of The Alter Ego Effect. You should listen to it, read it, all these things. Uh, buy every version, Kindle, pa paperback, hardback, and Audible. Uh, you'll thank yourself later. Uh, you talk about the core self- and there's four layers of the core self, the four layers of influences around our core self. Yeah. Let's just go through those real quick. Layer one, uh, your core drivers. Tell us about what, what that is. Yeah. Well, you actually unpacked perfectly the core drivers earlier in the episode when you were talking about how you're just a relationship guy. And here when you're playing tennis, you know, one of the things that you didn't want to do was beat the guy that you were practicing with because it always felt weird to you later. Because And that's because values are a big part of your core drivers. Um, the other thing that are part of your core drivers are it's typically the stuff that you're attaching yourself um, as an identity to that's bigger than you. It could be your religion that you're a part of. It could be um, uh, your race. It could be your gender. I'm a woman, I'm a man. And, and then whatever you think those things are in the context of whatever role you're in can trap you or it can release you. Groups that you're a part of. You know, it's funny, you get around police officers and they're all, a lot of them are gonna look and act the same. Teachers you know, go on and on through military families. And so those are core drivers or they're the things that are typically 
some of the most insidious ways that we get trapped by acting through something that doesn't feel like it's actually really us. Okay. And they can drive us as well. The core drivers, drivers in, in any direction. Then at the layer outside of that is a layer of like belief, attitude, our perceptions of the worlds around us. And um, a lot of people like to think that, you know, well, but beliefs are real and it's real to you, but it's not real to me. It's, it's your reality. And then outside of that is the level is a layer of your sort of knowledge or your competencies or your skills and your behaviors, things that you've developed. And then finally, the final layer is the layer of your environment, which is the place that you're interacting, the people that you're with places, the tools or, you know, whatever you're using. And all of those things end up affecting how someone ends, ends up performing in that area. So for example, I use the example on stage where I'm like, how many people here don't think that they can speak publicly? All right. You know, people say, yeah, I don't think I'm a very good speaker. Okay. Well, do you ever speak to your kids or do you ever speak? You speak to someone. It's just that as soon as you're put into a context, so the environmental level, you can't speak to a certain group of people, which means that you're adding an attitude or a perception or a belief to that. But that's not really who you are. Like you're not, because we put labels on ourselves. We say, I'm not a good speaker. Now it's an identity thing. Makes sense? Yep. And in the book, I talk about how there's the ordinary world and then there's the extraordinary world. And depending on where the forces are hitting you from, if you're doing something because of something outside of you to impress someone else, you're behaving in a certain way because of who just walked into the room or, you know, I can play good on my home ice, but I can't play good on the away ice and vice versa. Now, all of a sudden you're giving up all your providence. You're giving up all of your power to someone and something else. And as a guy who works with people on the inner game, that bothers me. And so this tool, this sort of model became my useful way of showing people like, no, whether it's an alter ego that you use or whatever, the only thing that I care about is that you operate from the core out. You decide how you want to show up. You act with intention, how you're going to show up or how you're going to behave and act And it's not because you're trying to impress other people, because that's just how you want to be showing up. And whether you use an alter ego to help you do that, or whether it's just a decision that you make, that's great. I just know that in behind these decisions that are sometimes given to people in the world of self-help and personal development to help them navigate life, like, hey, just be your real self. I love that idea. I would love it if it was true that someone could just decide to be their real self. But I'm a practitioner. So I give people tools that are proven psychologically to help people navigate it. And an alter ego was just one of my ways that I could help people show up in a more powerful way with intention. I love it. You made a statement about the belief layer that I'm sure many people who have listened to you speak and hear this will. It's a very good statement for many people in your life. No, that's not true. That's your reality. And just like realizing that, taking the time to realize that, I think so many of us just have never even thought that way. You know, unless I'm sure people who've been in really extreme situations with people who are crazy, I guess, might see that all the time. But there's so many people when you get pushed in these little situations that all of a sudden someone else's problem becomes your problem. And you're like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, this is, I didn't sign up for this. So that's, yeah. that's a great way to sort of compartmentalize that. Let's talk about the hidden forces of the enemy. I love how you talk about the three hidden forces. And I, yeah. I really love when you talk about if you got to define the enemy, because if you don't, it's the scariest thing ever. It's like I heard mm-hmm. Tony Robbins say one time that you got to mention Tony Robbins at least once a podcast, by the way, that's the rule. Um, so <laughs> the, uh, it's just an unspoken rule. But Tony once said, you know, that um, he would, it was asking someone questions like, well, they're going to think this, they're going to think this. And he, every time he'd have someone say, he'd be like, well, who are they? And it was typically yeah. like, came down to that voice in your head. It was, it was my mom or my ex-girlfriend. Yeah. It was like two people, if that. 
And it really, so it really wasn't an issue. You just had this deep inner game because you hadn't defined who the enemy was. So I'm sort of throwing you two questions, but let's talk about the yeah. three hidden forces and talk about not seeing the enemy. Yeah. So, I, well, they, they dovetail together, I think, really nicely. So, you know, just in the work, I'm not a therapist. I don't work with people on therapy. I work with people on performance, which is about helping someone to advance forward towards some goal, some milestone. But peak performance is not only advancing towards the goal and the milestone, but it's also enjoying the process along the way. In that kind of navigating between the six inches of people's ears and, you know, digging around in there, you're going to find little soft spots with people. And the three kind of biggest categories of them that I came across was one, you know, just past traumas, you know, just things that happened to you that were very traumatic. It was easy for me to be sensitive to those things as a, as a, as a young kid that came through some really tough stuff. When, uh, when I was, when I was 12, I had a phenomenal family, but at a church camp, when I, when I was 12 years old, two men sexually abused, raped me over the course of a couple of days. And that just, you know, ruined sort of my psychological world. And I kept it secret for over close to 30 years until I finally resolved it and got rid of it. So because it was so kind of high on my meter, I could detect it fast with a lot of athletes that they were driven by something that was coming from a very dark place. And uh, so that's one of the places. Another one is tribal narratives. And this goes back to that core driver's layer where sometimes we don't even realize that we're acting through the story of what we think it means to be a black person in this context or a Jewish person or a woman or an immigrant coming in or what, like, I need to be a police officer. Like we just, we take on these associations and a lot of times it traps us. Like it's, that's not really what we're about. Like, you know, I don't feel like I'm limited because of the fact I'm an immigrant or I don't feel like I should be limited because of, you know, the color of my skin or something, but some people are going to take that on. They're going to let it rule them. Now that isn't denying that there are some things that are very much in the environment, but you can either try to, I think Dr. Phil is the one who said this, and it's one of his great contributions to the world, which is, you know, you can either decide to uh, rule your own world or you can try to get everyone else on the, on the psychologist's couch and try to treat them until your world is fine. But good luck with the second option kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so tribal narratives, just like, because you use a label, like I'm a farm kid, I am, I'm a farm kid. Is that label hurting you or is it helping you? Like just asking yourself, just questioning these labels and making sure that they're serving you in a powerful way is important. And then the third one is imposter syndrome. Truly, it's become a bit of a buzzword now, which is unfortunate because people have kind of linked it to it meaning many things. It really only means two things. The imposter syndrome at its core means two things. One, you excusing away any successes that you've had in your life to dumb luck, accident. Oh, of course it was supposed to happen. That sort of thing. Okay. And then the other side of it is you truly being concerned, even though you're competent at something that you're going to be found out that the world is going to come at your door and they're going to knock on it. And they're going to tell you that you're not as good as you think that you are, right? Like that's something that some people do battle and it's, and it, and it, and it ends up driving people towards procrastination, avoiding behavior. All three of these things that drive people towards those things. Now, like I said, I'm not a therapist. I don't have the skills to help you overcome those things. And um, I'm not denying that you shouldn't go and get those things solved for you with a qualified professional or, you know, some tool to help you do that. But because I'm working with people who still need to go out onto the field and perform, I need to give them tools to help do that. And the alter ego is a great way. And in fact, using the concept of naming the enemy, 
Because if you just use your own circular conversation in your own head, you think it's you that's having this, like, you know, you're beating yourself up, right? But looking at that negative conversation that you have or whatever you might be doing, the self-doubt and giving it a name and finding someone in your past to link it towards, or really, because the, the other side of this is you can use someone else, but in the end, the most mature side of you is going to go, it's really me. And, and it's truly the ego. It's the ego within. And, but I want to give it a name because just conscious or subconsciously, consciously, the moment we give form and substance to something, the moment we name it, the moment we give it a shape, now we can handle it. We can deal with it. I can talk back to it. I can call it a name in my own head and tell it to go to the sidelines because it's, it's not going to serve you right now. It's super powerful because uh, most people just have this, I call it the merry-go-round effect in their own head. It just keeps on going around and around and around. I totally get that. So uh, as we're wrapping up here, everyone should get the alter ego effect. That's number one. I uh, should find you on social media. I assume they can find you everywhere. Todd Herman, is that how they find you? Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere social media is sold. <laughs> I'm there. Yeah, no. Instagram, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn. I mean, toddherman.me is my home home base on the web, on the, uh, on the interwebs and all the links to my stuff is there. Love it. And uh, anything we didn't talk about you think is important we should have covered? I think an important thing to kind of leave people with is this is an extremely natural part of the human experience. Every single person that's watching and listening has already used this because we all use this as a kid when we were our most creative self. Um, and in fact, between the age of one and seven, that's when our creative imagination is at its peak. That's because we're caught in what's called the theta brainwave state. When we're accessing cr super creative parts of ourselves, it's where we develop the fastest. We learn the most about the world around us and we develop skills. And then like you had said before, we get into teenage, adolescent years, and we, and we think we're supposed to act a certain way. And that means that all the stuff that we did as kids was us being childish and we shouldn't do those things anymore. anymore. And yet there are so many different, you know, breadcrumbs, examples, you know, pillars in, uh, you know, history, Martin Luther King, Winston Churchill, so many examples I even use in the book of people who didn't lose their connection to their creative imagination. It allowed them to, you know, show up in the world in a very powerful way. Who should I show up as today? A great quote from the book and from Winston Churchill. So uh, yeah. good stuff. Hey man, Todd, uh, always a pleasure to see you, man. Thanks so much for joining me. And uh, I wish you great success and everyone check out the book, The Alter Ego Effect. Thanks for joining me, Todd. Thanks, Nan. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.